You might want to turn to 1 John chapter 5. Listen, who is up for a really long and possibly very confusing sermon? I, I, <laughs> good, good. Because I really felt the Lord leading me to give you one of those today. <laughs> Just kind of worked out that way. So hang with me, as they say. I know what you mean. <laughs> you little Eutychus, you. <laughs> That's why we meet in the morning. <laughs> okay. So let's pray first. <laughs> Father, we do pray you'd keep us awake and attentive. And uh, there's actually a lot of important things here. So we pray we could be able to grasp what we can and... Uh, deal with the rest of my own imperfections and presenting whatever we've got here. But Father, we do look at your word and we ask you to bless it. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit and it has great meaning for us. And uh, may we learn from it this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so today we're coming to one of the most difficult texts in the New Testament in terms of just what in the world is he saying kind of thing. It's not that hard, except it's really hard. <laughs> so I just mean it's hard to interpret it's hard to understand and many great minds top Bible scholars have labored over this very short passage trying to grasp exactly what John is saying here so most of First John is pretty simple but this part's a little harder now I know that John's original readers were so familiar with his manner of speaking his theological language his terminology, his use of words, that they understood him exactly. But us, uh, a little harder, harder for us. So it isn't super detailed. The prose is not dense like Paul, you know. It's a John thing. So John writes really simple elementary school sentences with really simple words. Sometimes that makes things harder, like we've talked about, because... Um, Sometimes you want more elaboration and he elaborates with more simple words and sometimes you're saying, well, what exactly is he getting at? And that's one of these kind of texts here today. So um, before we get into it, I want to talk why we're covering this. And so I want to talk a little bit about expository preaching first and then we'll get to the text. Okay, so um, the benefits of verse by verse preaching and teaching. One of the benefits is that you crash into something like this and you can't skip over it. You can try, but you can't. You're, you're not allowed to. So to exposit something means to explain it or elaborate on it or, or flesh out some text or idea uh, with whatever you're doing. And Bible exposition is doing that with the scriptural texts, of course. So ex exposition and preaching or teaching the Bible is explaining it in context so you will know what God wants you to know, what he wants you to know, right? You may have heard sermons where the pastor kind of reads a, a short text or a, a Bible story and then kind of uses it as a springboard for something he wants to talk about. Anybody ever been in a church where that happened? So I, I, I remember sermons like that. And some ministry scallywags, they call that read the text, depart from the text, and never return to the text. <laughs> so, um, and that's fairly common in some circles. Now you can learn from a sermon like that because as long as the guy's giving you some kind of truth, you know, that's actually scriptural, you can benefit from it. But mainly what you're getting is sort of the mind of the preacher, 
instead of the mind of God, which is what we're trying to do here. So the the expositor of the Bible is only happy if you get what God wants you to get out of it. Not so much his thoughts, but what the writer is presenting. That's what his goal is. I don't know if I'm going to succeed with that today, but we're going to, but that's our goal. So the expositor labors to understand the text, stays close to the text, and his great purpose is for you to understand the author's intent. Okay, so the Bible, the Bible should always be the heart of the pulpit. That's what, that's why we do what we do here. And exposition is best done not by random, you could pick out a text and do a good expository sermon on it, but it's best done when you go verse by verse through a book. And that's why we do that because you will always have the context there, right? You've been fed the context all the way along. So there's not a lot of surprises in terms of what his goal is and what's happening and all of that kind of thing. It's just the best way to do it, I think, right? So it's the Bible itself teach exposition, expositional preaching. Well, I think it actually does. You know, Paul the Apostle, he gave three words to Timothy, his disciple, when he wrote him in first, Second Timothy chapter 4. He said, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, are you ready? <laughs> Preach the word. That's what he said. So the way he prefaces that makes me think that's pretty important. Preach the word. It sounds very serious. And then Paul in his farewell speech to the elders in Ephesus when he was passing on to Jerusalem and he wanted to meet with them one last time. He says, you're not going to see my face again. But he had one last word for them. And he says in verse uh, Acts 20, 26, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Everything God had for you, I gave to you. The whole purpose of God. So not skipping about and picking and choosing what I like about it. Not leaving anything out. Wrestling with every text to get the truth out of it is the idea there. So the whole purpose of God is getting the most we can out of what we have in scripture. The greatest example of that is actually in the Old Testament. Ezra the scribe. Ezra the hero. Um, he stood behind a wooden, wooden podium with his team, Nehemiah 8.8 8 says, and it says, they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. So that's what his job was, to make scripture known to the, the generation of Jews that came back from the Babylonian captivity and were going to settle in the land. He went through the law of God and explained it systematically to them. So exposition of the text is really good for everybody, because by doing it, for one thing, the authority of God's word is established. We're saying, what's our authority for what we're saying up here? It's God's word. Those attending on it to, to hear God's word are getting it in context, like we said. The whole counsel of God is honored because you're going through, you're not skipping stuff or not dealing with the hard parts. And the preacher, and an expository preacher is much less likely to be a hobby horse preacher. You know what a hobby horse preacher is? He's got his favorite topic and he just teaches that all the time. That's what he preaches on. So he, he always goes back to his own thing. And the, and the other thing is the hard passages are not ignored. So you've got to deal with the hard passages. So if you just preach whatever you feel like, probably the hard passages are never going to be talked about. Because uh, why deal with that if you can just jump over it, right? So um, if you only preach the text you choose 
And then you find 1 John 5, 16 and 17 and it makes you think about it. Well, just don't preach it, right? Just skip over it. Just, just kind of jump around. So it's kind of the easy way. But if you preach whole books, you have to work through the hard text. So that's, that's why we do what we do. So, and here we are at a hard passage. So we're looking at 1 John 5, 16 and 17. I'm going to start reading from verse 14. Because the subject of prayer is what really leads to the issue in verse 16 and 17. So dealing with who your prayers would better serve is sort of the theme here. So this is what John says. Verse 14. This is the confidence which we have before him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. So we talked about that last week. Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. All unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin not leading to death. Well, I think that's pretty clear. <laughs> we can go home. No. Um, so, you know, you read this and certain questions start springing to mind just sort of automatically. I don't know anybody that's read this and just says, oh, I get it. Um, what is a sin not leading to death as opposed to a sin that's leading to death or to sin that's leading to death? Because, well, I'll get to that later. But notice verse 16 talks about a brother. So is there a sin of some kind that does not lead to death committed by a brother, which would be a Christian. And if you pray for him, God will give him life. And what life is that? Those are the questions. So, well, in fact, what is the sin leading to death also that you don't need to pray for? He's actually saying you don't need to pray for that one, but for the guy that has a sin that's not leading to death, you can pray for him and God will give him life. But he's not dying. So what does that mean? Um, so John says there's some kind of sin leading to death and while he doesn't forbid praying for that person, he says prayer is not particularly useful for that person whose sin is leading to death. So that's just hard. It's just hard. So he's not going to press it on you to pray for that person. It's not mandatory. He says it's up to you. He's not saying don't pray for the person with a sin leading to death, but you don't have to. So anyway, so the sin leading to death, what is it? The sin not leading to death, what is that? And why pray for one and not the other one? And the other big question here is what kind of death are we talking about? Is it? Is it spiritual or is it physical? So that's what we're going to talk about. There's different views on all of this. So um, there's physical death or spiritual death. Spiritual death is the second death. The lake of fire in the book of Revelation, Revelation 2015. So I think the kind of death we're talking about here will help answer what the sin is, but it's not readily apparent, okay? Uh, even what death John is talking about. He only uses death one other time in this particular letter. In fact, in all of his letters, there's only, he only talked about death once, and that's in chapter 3, verse 14, where it does mean spiritual death, definitely, being separated from God, not saved. But one use in chapter 3 just isn't a strong enough case to say that that has to mean that in all the, every other time he uses it. It's not like a theme for him. Now he does use life a dozen or so times in 1 John and it almost always means eternal life, the life that you get in Christ when you believe in him. 
1 John 5.12 would be a good example. The testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. That's clearly eternal life he's talking about there. So it wouldn't be unreasonable to read that as the meaning of the life here. Um, But there again, kind of depends on the death. So when he says in chapter 5 verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. So it could mean eternal life, but he's already got life because this is a brother. Unless he's not a real brother, which could be what he means by this. So so I'm not sure the life here in verse 16 is eternal life because this guy's already a brother. A, a Christian in sin is not in danger of spiritual death, of the second death. The, the use of this word life here then just makes it hard. It's hard to figure out. If he's a brother, he has eternal life. If he's really a brother, if he's really a believer in Christ. So what life will God give him then if he repents? That would be the question there. He's not in danger of death. So let's, let's try to bring in some other scriptures to help a little bit. So Paul talks about a sinning brother in Galatians chapter 6. You can turn there if you want to or just listen. But um, Paul talks about a sinning brother being restored. But he doesn't use the idea of life, getting life back. So Galatians 6.1, famous passage. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So in Galatians, the emphasis on restoring the brother in sin, bringing him back into the fellowship. Restored would be getting him back into his proper Christian walk, getting him to repent of his sin and start living in a way that pleases the Lord. And maybe that's what John means by the life, just getting back on track, maybe. Some people take that view. So the path of life would be like living again according to the spiritual life as directed by Christ. The life he already has but flowing out uh, into his living and the way he conducts himself. So we gently confront that person with sin, call on them to repent. If he's a brother, he should listen and humble himself. But he might not. But still our goal, Galatians 6.1 says, is to restore him. That's what we try to do with a brother. So Paul in Galatians 6 is telling us how to approach a sinning brother. We do it gently and we we go to him and talk to his. John is telling us to be sure that we're praying for a sinning brother. That's what his theme is. So he doesn't talk about restoration. We, We do seek to restore, but he's talking about your prayers. That was the theme that led us into this. 14 and 15 led us into 16 and 17. So it's the subject is prayer. Are you confused yet? Good, Paul has got it. Share it with me. (laughs) Okay, there's more to this. He could be using brother in this broad sense of somebody that was part of the fellowship, but is not saved. So he could just be talking about a brother that claimed to be a Christian, a brother by profession, right? He says he follows Christ. He says he's a Christian. We can't always know who's born again. We don't have a born again meter and your head doesn't light up when you're born again or anything like that. So we have to take people based on their profession, you know, what they say. So we can't always know for certain. He might not be a real brother in this case. Maybe brother here in verse 15 is just a general term. John, 1 John 5, 15 um, is just a general term for somebody in the church. Now another good example of that 
would be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul again. So let's go there. Let's actually look at that one. 1 Corinthians 5.11 says, he says, I wrote to you not to associate, this is the way my New American Standard says it, not to associate with any so-called brother. If he is an immoral person, a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So, so-called brother. Now, if you have an ESV, it actually uses the, a clearer term that's actually in the Greek. It's a named brother. He names himself as a brother. That's actually the word that's used there for so-called named. He has the name Christian, but you can't tell by his behavior. In fact, this guy is acting so unchristian that you should not be in fellowship with that person so Christ would not be dishonored. They have to deal with their sin. If they're refusing to deal with their sin, he says, don't even eat with them. Don't, don't, have, don't, don't let people, other people think that person is a Christian. So the reality of his faith is actually in question here. So it's possible that John is using brother based on the profession that he makes only, not that he's actually born again person. And he says to pray for this person, but not the one that committed the sin that led to death. So in this view, this is a so-called brother. This is a so-called brother, and it means that the sin unto death then, that you don't pray for, would be apostasy, like denying Christ altogether. Leaving Jesus for some other Jesus. Now, we've dealt with that in 1 John a lot, right? If you've been here with us. Because the whole reason for writing this letter is that people had left the church to join a cult. Right? Remember that? And he said they went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us. 1 John chapter 2. So that's, very, that's a very attractive view about this particularly hard passage because it fits the context of the book. And that's helpful. So leaving Christ would be the sin unto death. Now if that sin leading to death is apostasy, denying the true Christ, you don't need to pray for that. That's what he'd be saying. They won't be back. But this guy, the so-called brother, actually is committing a sin not leading to death. So it's not apostasy. So what is it? So let me summarize kind of the major view here that this is the first view I've been sharing you although there's little variations of it. So the one not committing a sin unto death is either a Christian who has fallen into sin but can be restored. He hasn't denied Christ. Or it's a Christian who is a so-called brother but can still be saved because he hasn't denied Christ either. We know he can still be saved because he says pray for him. So he needs the gospel. So if this one is not sinning unto death, but merely a professing Christian who still needs to be saved, then by you praying for him, God may give him life and bring him to salvation. That's what he's saying. He needs the gospel. And that is one possible interpretation of this text. So there would be hope for him because he hasn't sinned like the apostate sin. That's the idea. So if there's hope. Then keep praying. If you get anything out of this. It's pray for people that are in sin. For believers that are in sin. Or professing believers that are in sin. So, um, so I do think that fits the context pretty well. But the whole idea. Of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Where we read a little bit earlier. And the church discipline idea. Leads to another 
another major way of seeing 1 John. So I want you to go back to 1 Corinthians 11 and we're going to read through that. Especially the way it uses the word death here. John uses death. So here's major view 2. That was major view 1 with some modifications. And now major view 2. Okay. So this other view, major view 2, says we are not talking about apostasy. And we're not talking about spiritual death. Instead, John is talking about a sin that a believer commits that leads to physical death. And if you take it that way, if the death is physical, it changes your whole view of the passage and what he's trying to get to here. So, sometimes, sometimes a Christian sins very willingly. They get caught up in some sin. Let's say it's a, let's say it's a married man and, and he's got a honey on the side. He gets enraptured with her and starts sinning, right? And, and he can't break it. He can't get away from it. So he's dedicated to that sin. He's like committed to that sin. He loves that sin. He's not fighting it. There's no struggle going on. At least not a very serious one going on. And that happens with all kinds of sins. I love my sin. I love Jesus but I love my sin too. So they're actually kind of content. Being in the situation they're in. They're even happy about it sometimes. And they are stubbornly disobedient. They refuse the counsel of godly Christian friends they refuse the counsel of their shepherds so when it comes out and people start confronting it they don't walk away they don't say you're right you're right like David you know when Nathan came to him David you're right I'm a sinner that's the right response but this guy doesn't have that response so um, the Bible speaks of situations like that with perfect clarity now if you've been in ministry as long as I have you've probably seen that multiple times because that happens Fairly often. Not all the time. But fairly often. And Jesus told us what to do about that. In fact let me take you to Matthew 18. Before we go to 1 Corinthians. I'll just read this. If you know Matthew 18. 15 through 20. I'm going to read that. Jesus clearly says. If your brother sins. Go and show him his fault. In private. If he listens to you. You have won your brother. Okay. This is the process of what's called church discipline. Right. You go in private. If they repent it's done you never bring it up again you don't share it that's it if he does not listen to you take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed if he refuses to listen to them tell it to the church and if he refuses to listen even to the church let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector now tax collecting wasn't just a job in those days it was the most low life person you could think of Never have anything to do with them. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. That's important. Again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that, may, that you may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered it together in my name, there I am in their midst. So that whole thing there is talking about church discipline. So the church in this situation does everything it can do. To try to bring back this person that's caught up in a sin. If the person won't repent after many opportunities. They are to be treated as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now Jesus is talking to Jews. So a Jew would not let a Gentile come into his home. A Jew would not have lunch with a Gentile. A Jew would, uh, they kept very separate lives. They considered Gentiles as unclean. And tax collectors were Jews that served the Romans. So they were the 
worst of the worst. They were worse than a Gentile. You had nothing to do with them. So Matthew the tax collector being an apostle was actually a pretty interesting move on Jesus' part. But um, so Jesus means basically you withdraw fellowship from that person. Uh, you, don't, you don't say brother because that person isn't acting like a brother. You don't greet them uh, in that, that way. So you're not to be mean to them either. You're not supposed to be harsh or mean ever. You Just like Paul said in Galatians 6.1, you restore them in a spirit of gentleness. You're always gentle. There's no reason to be mad at somebody because they're in a trap. You should feel sorry for them. So the bond we have in Christ is, is broken when a professing believer is just going to sin and doesn't, isn't going to stop. And no, nothing can persuade them to stop. So that bond is broken that we have in Christ. So the unrepentant brother is supposed to feel the separation that's actually our spiritual duty. I have a letter at home from somebody that went through this process uh, with, with me at a different church and, and, and he thanked us for doing that to him because it brought him around. It did bring him around. So um, that, that's what it's supposed to do. That's the only goal in doing it. Well, one is to protect the church and the reputation of Christ, but the other one is to bring that person back. We always want that restoration, right? To restore, restore. So... Now, if they are struggling against sin, this brother, and they're just blowing it, let's say they have a drinking problem or something like that, and they blow it sometimes, they stumble, they fall, but they're in the fight, then we're right there with them all the way through, forever. I mean, that's our, our spiritual duty is to be with them and pray with them and encourage them and lend aid as long as the battle's being fought. But the day they say, you know, I've decided not to fight this anymore. I really like it, and that's just what I'm going to do. Well, that's when this Matthew 18 process kind of kicks in. So it's a process, so they have a lot of time to reconsider. You go once, give them some time. Go back with somebody else, you give them some time. Tell it to the church. Everybody tells them. You give it some time. Finally, you have to say, you know, you don't belong here anymore. But if the, so if they don't turn around, the church excludes them. It's called excommunication, right? You're not in communion with us anymore. You are excommunicated, out of communion. And Jesus said, what the church binds on earth is bound in heaven. People don't believe that when that happens, but that's actually true. So, because here's what people think. Well, I'm just going to go to the next church down the street and be my sinful self there. But it's bound in heaven. It's bound in heaven. You're, that doesn't help you in God's eyes. See, you don't care. If you're in that place, you don't care what God thinks already. So you think there's not, it's not real or God doesn't really care. He's kind of distant and all that kind of stuff. But he does care. And when a church does that properly, it's bound in heaven. So that's your status before the Lord um, being excommunicated. So, um, so what we saw in 1 Corinthians 5, I'll go back here now. 1 Corinthians 5 comes back in. So I only read a little part of it, the last part. But Paul said much more there. So um, in 1 Corinthians 5.11, he said, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother or a named brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater, right? And he goes through the whole list. But earlier, so we're in the same chapter, chapter 5, back up. Paul begins the whole subject like this. And he's talking about gross unrepentant immorality and this is Corinth Corinth the name Corinth to Corinthia 
Corinthicize and the ancient world meant to be a totally immoral person, <laughs> sexually immoral person. So it was, the city was known for sexual depravity, but a church was there. Of course, people are in that church that had a long history of depraved behavior, right? So they've got to work that out and grow in sanctification and grow in their faithfulness to the Lord and all of that. That church is standing for Christ, but not everybody, not everybody is standing for Christ. So 1 Corinthians 5, 1. It's actually reported that there is immorality among you, porneia, and immorality of such a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. A church that doesn't deal with sinful situations is an arrogant church. That's what Paul says. For I, verse 3, on my part, though absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That is excommunication right there. He's describing that. Official. So that's the same idea as treating him as a Gentile or a tax gatherer. But now we're in a Gentile context, so he doesn't use that language about this guy. He says, turn him over to Satan. For the destruction of his flesh, he says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So there's hope there for salvation for this person. The, the process is meant to bring him to a place where God is going to deal harshly with him and that might turn him around and save his soul, right? Or he is saved and God's just taking him off the field. It's one way or the other there. So the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved. Destruction of the flesh can only mean physical suffering or death. So that's where this kind of connects maybe to First John. That's what Christ commanded the church to do that. And at some point, at some point, the church has done everything it can do except pray. And honestly, the church can't know if this is a saved person or not. When, when it gets to that point, you just don't know. You can't know. And sometimes you think you know because you know that person pretty well and they've just suddenly gone nuts. And you think, well, that is a saved person. They're just off the rails and not listening. Or it could be a person that was just enjoyed church life and said all the right things and really didn't know God at all. Could be that way too. So they're, but they're acting like an unregenerate person, a once born person. So where's the evidence of the Holy Spirit? That's what you're thinking. And their actions speak louder than whatever they say, of course, that matters more. So they're turned over to the person they are listening to. Since they aren't listening to you, they're listening to Satan. And they're turned over to him. And at this point they pass out of the church's responsibility. So John if this is what he's talking about. Might be saying you know what prayers are fine. But you don't need to make it a priority. With regard to this person who is being put out. To turn over to Satan for physical punishment. Even death perhaps. You don't need to pray for that. Because now it's in God's hands. And God will use Satan to deal with that person. Just like, like Job right. So um, Job wasn't of course bad but I mean Satan was serving God's purpose and doing his thing. So God will let Satan have a measure of freedom to assault this person that's in sin and from what we see in scripture it can be physical. That's the Job like part of it. It's uh, 
affliction, even death. So once a person has been turned over to Satan, the church is really turning them over to God and saying, God, you can do whatever you want with them. And God is saying, I'm going to let Satan have this guy for a while. So for the purpose of this, 1 John passage, we see here in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, that the individual spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So that's, that's the good thing. That's the good news. If they're born again and they're foolish and making sinful choices, that's not going to keep them out of heaven because you're secure in Christ um, from his salva- in your salvation. But they could be called off the field, you know, literally on the earth. Just can't play the game anymore. Sorry. You're out, of, you're out of the picture. You're disqualified from further participation in what God is doing in this world and you're a horrible example. So I'm taking you home. That would be the idea there if it's a believer. They get to come home early with a little scolding. So this life in this world is taken from them. And he says that's what they do. I'll give you another example of that. Go to, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 regarding communion. This is the Lord's table. If you're familiar, if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, you know that this one guy in chapter 5 was not their only problem. Have you ever read 1 Corinthians? Messed up church. Party spirit, not having parties, but um, yeah, that too. But um, division, you know, groups at each other. Women's roles was an issue. Misusing spiritual gifts was an issue. Um, Totally missing the point of communion. The Lord's table, that was an issue. So they let their divisions and their arrogance corrupt the Lord's Supper. uh, Which is supposed to be the greatest unifying and the most humbling thing that a Christian can experience is going before the Lord and, and taking the elements of symbolizing his death and re- his death for you, you know. So if you can be arrogant while you're doing that and being divisive while you're doing that, you are really out of it. And they, oh, they were out of it. They were really blowing it. So, um, so we gather around the communion table. To, what, why do we do that? To think about our unworthiness, not our arrogance, right? Not to promote ourselves. Oh, Let's take the Lord's table today. I'm so good. I should be able to have it. No, that's not it. It's to point out your unworthiness and the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice to save you. That's the other element of that. I'm unworthy. He's all worthy. That's, that's what you do when you come to the Lord's table to remind yourself of God's incredible love for you. But they didn't have any regard for that. So now before I read down in verse 17, you should know though that in the early church, communion was part of a, uh, a shared meal, the agape feast. So they actually had a meal along with it. So verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. Verse 22, what? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? So you would think that would be a time when everybody's sharing their food, and it's a potluck, you know, good Baptist or something. Let's have a potluck. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. And then in verse 23 and 26, he goes through the the words that we use in our communion service, right? You know, 
cake, eat, all of that. Then in verse 27, skip down to there. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself and in so doing he is to eat the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. So if you're abusing the Lord's table like they were and you don't judge it rightly, he says you bring judgment on yourself. What is the judgment? Verse 30, for this reason many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Sleep is a New Testament euphemism for death many times. Illness and death was sent among them for taking the communion elements in an unworthy manner. Verse 31. If we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are what? What's God doing when he does this? We are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. There again, you have physical consequences brought upon people to, to keep them saved, to either wake them up or take them off the field before they get worse <laughs> and drift away. So now, this is serious, right? Isn't that serious? On those occasions when someone has, has chafed at all correction and they're put out of the church, put out of the fellowship, we here always tell them and we write them a letter, do not take communion. We tell them that. Don't go somewhere else and take communion. If you want to go live in your sin, that's between you and God now. But don't take communion. We always tell them that because of this. Often they just go to another church, completely unrepentant, and eat and drink to their heart's content, take the Lord's table, and sometimes Satan will bring illness or death on that person. Because when people do this, they're in a frame of mind that they don't really believe that God is holy anymore. And they, they don't take sin seriously. But he always takes sin seriously. So in my opinion, that's what John is talking about in 1 John chapter 5. This is just my view. If you have a different view, you are just as possibly right as I am. <laughs> so, but this is my opinion. So the sin unto death is not a particular sin. It's sin. The individual doesn't have any interest in repenting of. It could be any kind of sin. Just full steam ahead on the sin train. That's what I'm going to do. That's that guy. And that means the sin not leading to death is the brother that is fighting against his sin. And you should pray for him and with him and bring him along. That's what I think it means. So the sin not leading to death is the one we're confessing the one we're fighting against, the one we might be stumbling over. I got a bad temper and I blow up sometimes, that kind of thing, whatever. But um, when godly leaders or godly friends bring that to our attention, we say, you're right. You're right. Thank you. I hate it when I do that. You're absolutely right. Please pray for me. Pray with me. Help me over this problem. Keep me accountable. Ask me how I'm doing. Ask my wife. No, don't ask her. <laughs> the Bible says the shepherds of the flock keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. 
Hebrews 13, 17. That's our, that, we're responsible before God for how you're conducting yourself. So, brother and sister, we are more than willing to fight against, you, against your sin with you. Uh, again, as long as you're fighting, we'll fight with you. That's a promise. We'll stand with you. And I believe this willingness to fight sin is the sin not leading to death. The, the sin you truly wish to conquer, though it keeps appearing. In the old days, they called it a besetting sin. Christians have known about this forever. It's a besetting sin. It just keeps showing up. It's kind of in your system, you know. It's hard to shake out, hard to beat. But as you fight and as we pray with you and for you, God will give you life. And by that, I think what he's saying in 1 John 5, 16, there is freedom and well-being in your life from, from defeating that. I think that's the life he's talking about there. Is that a perfect understanding of the text? None of these views are perfect. So something's got to give a little bit somewhere. So in th- instead of this being spiritual life or eternal life, this is probably just your physical life for one thing is preserved, but also your sense of well-being. Because, you know, when sin's in you, like David said, his bones were out of joint. You know, he, it was, he felt the physical pressure of God's judgment on him when he was withholding his sin with Bathsheba and wouldn't confess it until Nathan. He, he went like that for about a year, just not dealing with it. He said, my body was wasting away. He, he felt all of that. But when you repent, you know, life comes back. It, that, that pressure is off. The, the internal turmoil is, is gone because you're forgiven. We have this in James chapter 5 verse 14 and 15 as well. Is there anyone among you sick? He must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And then he says this, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. So, you know, when people call the elders of the church, we do come to people's house and we anoint them with oil and we pray over them and hopefully God will raise them up. But you know what? If there's sin in your life, you should confess that because that might be part of the problem. Could be, right? So James also sees a connection between wellness and addressing sin issues. Now, that said, most illness and physiological failures of our bodies are just the natural course of thing. I'm getting old and I'm falling apart too. You know, we we're, we're all go through that kind of stuff and everybody will. So not every illness is something like that. In fact, most of the time, it's just your normal decaying, right? And, or, or being stupid and uh, riding bicycles off of cliffs or something. So, uh, you know, the godliest saints in the world suffer. In fact, if you look at church history, often the godliest of the godliest saints suffer physically. So God has all kinds of reasons. Again, look at Job. He, he was righteous and suffered incredibly. But God had other purposes for that. So sometimes it's that, right? So don't read all illness as some kind of a sin thing or God's after me. But if you know about sin in your life and you're not dealing with it, well, that might be a consequence um, in, in God dealing with you in a physical way. So that's my view of sin and death, a sin unto death. It's a physical illness or death resulting from a stubborn unwillingness to forsake one's sins, especially when we've been officially addressed by the church regarding it. So there are different views. Could I be wrong? Yes, I could be wrong. It's a difficult question. Good scholars disagree. So, 30 second application. Here we go. No matter what view you hold, there's some things you can take away from this. The first one is, take your own sin seriously. That, that's an absolute. Don't be a lax Christian. 
Paul says, don't give the devil an opportunity. Yes, that's right. Don't give him an opportunity. He'd love to rip you up and bring you down. So also part of that is being open to correction, (coughs) being open to correction from other believers. One of the reasons church exists that Jesus created church is to hold each other accountable. You hold me accountable if you see me sin. I'll hold you accountable if I see you sin. You know, we talk about stuff. We, we deal with each other. We don't talk about each other. We go to each other and deal with sin. I can't find a verse in the Bible where it says, if your brother sins, go and tell everybody you know. <laughs> Make it the subject of Bible study gossip. It doesn't say that. It says you go to them. So that's, that's what you do. The second thing is pray for those in sin. That's what he's saying here. That's what he's saying. That's what John is advocating. That has to be done humbly. So don't be a scold. Watch out for the log in your own eye, Jesus said. Don't be superior. Talking about a brother's sin um, doesn't need to be done beyond talking to what that person. Don't deal with somebody's sin beyond what the Bible prescribes in terms of dealing with it. And that is you go to them, bring somebody else, only tell it to the church if there's a constant unrepentance and that telling it to the church thing isn't gossiping that's bringing it out so everybody can be a part of this prayer and effort to bring that person to repentance so pray instead of gossip that's the best way to love a brother in sin or a sister in sin okay let me close by reading Galatians 6 1 again brethren if anyone is caught in any trespass you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness Each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Not that you're going to be tempted to do what they're doing. But you're going to be puffed up with your own sins and arrogance. Don't let that happen. Let's pray. Father, we uh, ask you to keep us close to you so that we never refuse correction. And if we do, that when the second time it comes around, we'll think better of it and accept it then. Let us never neglect also to pray for those who are trapped and deceived by sin. Make us prayer warriors for those who struggle. We all have weaknesses, as you know. Profound weaknesses sometimes, things we don't share. So give us grace to hold one another up. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen.